if I make 100 calls, chances are I'm going to get 20 calls back and 10 of them will turn into a meeting and one thing will drop. That was always my way of doing everything. And so it was just about how many lists of 100 can you make before you get to something. That takes a, a spirit and an energy that you have to be able to take knockbacks. You've got to be able to take rejection. And for me, it was just I don't take those things personally. I never for once thought, is it me? Am I not good at this? I was just like, wow, on to the next one. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you are a frequent listener here, thank you. We really appreciate your loyalty. Thanks for coming back. And if you're new, welcome. I hope you like what you hear. So each week we work here to demystify success. It's a complicated word, but the bottom line here is that we talk to the world's most influential women across all different industries, and the conversations are meant to go beyond the resume. They are not about the talking points. We have diversions, and we look at decision-making, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that shape careers. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. I'm so excited to have you here with us. So No Limits today, we have with us, she is an entrepreneur. She's the co-founder and CEO of the denim brand Good American, which she founded in 2016 with Khloe Kardashian. She started her first company at 24 years old. It was an entertainment marketing agency that specialized in fashion, retail, and luxury clients, which she later sold to the company IPG Media after opening offices in London, New York, and LA. She invented the size 15 jeans because she noticed that size 14 and 16 were the most return sizes. And by the way, when Good American launched, it was the largest denim launch in apparel history. They reached a million dollars on the very first day in sales. That's incredible. Welcome to No Limits, Emma Thank Grady. Thank you. Thank Excuse you me. so much. I have to get your name right. Oh, Welcome. don't even, don't no, even bother. No, it's very important. It's Honestly, very important it's to just, me. I, you know, it, first of all, it's, you know, I took the surname of my husband. So I feel like this weird pressure that people have to get it right. And it took me so long to get it right. It's <laughs> Griede, if you really want to say it right. But in America, I kind of love it that people call me Mrs. Greedy. And that's <laughs> it. Which actually, you know, when my mother found out that I was going to marry Mr. Greedy, she was like, of course, you're going to be called Emma Greedy. That is <laughs> the most perfect and fitting name for you ever. So I'm going to go with Greedy. Well, this is off to a great start, <laughs> Emma Greedy. Just- Thank you for joining us here on No Limits. And by the way, listeners, you can hear it in her voice. You grew up in East London. Absolutely, I did. Yes. What is East London for, for all of us uh, Americans listening and uh, anyone else who's listening around the world? What is East London like? What was that like in well, your childhood? You know, it's so interesting because it's probably the part that if you go back 30 something years um, it was the part that you don't visit. Nowadays it's very trendy and it's cool and it's kind of like being in Brooklyn but back then it was not the nicest side of the tracks Um, and it was you know I grew up in a very kind of lower class area where it was pretty rough Um, and you know I had a wonderful upbringing it was very kind of neighbourhoody and fantastic and I'm still you know great friends and feel a great kind of connection to where I'm come from but it wasn't um it wasn't safe <laughs> so okay so it wasn't safe so were no. you nervous as a kid no never you know I'm a pretty you know I was raised to be pretty tough I'm one of four daughters to a single mother and so there's a certain amount of 
toughness that comes with mm-hmm. that, like just surviving in and that kind of household. Too, probably. Absolutely. You know, we, we joke a lot, my mum and I, that, you know, she's the dad, she went out to work, I stayed home looking after the kids and we have three children together. So it's an odd family <laughs> dynamic, actually, when you think about it. But um, I think that actually East London and what it's really synonymous with is a certain type of toughness and personality Mm. in the people and I definitely have that running through my veins and so you know something I'm really proud of and something that I hark back to in so many ways you know when you're like in business and during negotiations I feel very East London in my mentality. I love that there's that hustle and that grit it's it's coming off of you I can (laughs) feel it and I'm sure people could feel it too when you were 24 starting that first company yeah what was the response? You know, it's so interesting. I was very lucky in that I was given a lot of responsibility at a very young age in my first job. And that really came down to the fact that I was in a small company and everybody had to pull their way. And so when I started my own business, it was really, I was drawn to working with people that were entrepreneurial in their spirit. Um, and that's actually where I met my now husband um, and his business partner. So Jens and Jens Greed and Eric Torstensen were my first ever investors. And they really set me up with my own company and gave me the money and the infrastructure to be able to start ITB. And so it wasn't as scary as it now seems. And actually, in a way, I think everything I didn't know led me to a place where, you know, I had that naivety, if you like, Mm -hmm. that, you know, I didn't know what could go wrong. And so in a way, I just got on with things that right now just would seem scary or stupid. (laughs) I hear that a lot from a lot of entrepreneurs. If they were aware of how hard it was going to be, if they were aware of how many barriers there were going to be in their way, they might not have have, have ended up going down that path. You studied in college, you studied um, business, but also fashion. And did you know where... Where along the way did it sort of hit you that it was not just about fashion, about what looks good, but also what you can sell? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. So fashion has always been something that I had a passion for. And I think when you grow up in an area that's devoid of beauty and any of that glamour. So I was really drawn to that world. Mm. But I never saw myself as a, you know, a a creative, like in the strictest sense. I thought design and creativity was for someone else. And as I was like a natural, you know, as you said in the beginning, it's like, I am a natural hustler. I am, you know, someone who has grit kind of like running through their brain and veins and the rest of it. Um, And so when I started in, you know, the kind of professional work capacity, what I was drawn to was negotiation was actually striking a deal was like getting something off of someone and I didn't really know what that was in the beginning right it's like I got a rush when I did it but I had no idea what that would mean for me in the future of my career and actually as it happened I started working with artists and designers and I was in a role you know doing production and when you're in fashion show production essentially what you're doing is building sets you're taking somebody's creative vision but you are a builder and a facilitator and in the fashion business a show you know is up and down in 10 minutes and then three months of work is unraveling right so for me it wasn't so much about finding what I was good at or it was really finding like this is not what I wanted to do and I was getting closer and closer by being around creative people and that felt really good to me but I did a lot of jobs that I actually you know didn't enjoy. Tell me about that. (laughs) What what, what are some of the jobs you hated? Well, you know, it's like, I I can't say I ever hate them. I worked for a long time in retail. So first of all, I was in a delicatessen when I was like really young. So, you know, you're like slicing meat and serving coffee. I did that for three years on the weekends. And then I graduated to the shop floor. So I was in retail and I, you know, sold 
wonderful designer clothes because for me I just wanted to be around it and so any proximity to and that maybe get a discount on them and too definitely get a discount <laughs> I was the idiot that every bit of you know wage and commission I earned went straight back into whichever store I was working in um, but you know again it was a way for me to be close to the things that I really cared about um, and then as when I probably was in my late teens I got a job in a fashion show event production company and that's when it really started for me that's when I started to connect the dots of where my my skills actually were and I found myself brokering contracts between artists fashion designers and brands and that's where I understood I had a skill for negotiations Mm. I understood how contracts worked and I was very good at getting stuff off of people and so I kind of kind of felt like oh I've hit my stride and so when I set up my first business at that point I really understood what I was good at and where my skills were and that even though I wasn't a creative I was very good at working with very creative people and bringing their ideas to life and so I kind of found my niche. I love your energy seriously love (laughs) love love the energy coming off of you Emma and I want to talk about negotiating in a second because I feel like if I was going to negotiate against someone, I would never want to negotiate on the other <laughs> side of the table from you. So I, I, whatever you can share with us, I think will be very valuable. Uh, the Kardashians, obviously, huge name. Huge. And you bring a massive amount of talent to the table as well. How did you first connect with the Kardashian family? So if you are in entertainment marketing, and I've said this many, many times before, you are not in business if you are not working with Kris Jenner in some way, shape or form. And actually, you know, if we go back 10 years to when I started ITB, there was this seismic shift in what happened in the kind of brand marketing collaboration partnership space, right? We went from, you know, the A-list actresses being the be-all and end-all of everything to this kind of new world where reality stars, TV stars, Mm. and then much later influencers and digital stars, they became the people with all the currency, the talent with the currency, and therefore where brands wanted to put their dollars and, you know, their partnerships. Um, And so my agency, ITB, was very, very early in the influencer space. Um, And I met Kris Jenner because, you know, all the brands wanted to work with her girls. And so you do what you do. You know, my job was coming to New York and coming to LA every single month and meeting every manager, agent, publicist, business manager, lawyer on the planet. So you and Chris was one of them. She was one of them. Yeah. Did you... Would you call yourself someone at that point, somebody who knew people or was this pretty much cold calling? Oh, I knew no one. Honestly, when I started ITB, I didn't know who CAA were. And I remember (laughs) someone saying... CAA is a major agency, by the way. yeah. It's a major agency that if you're in the entertainment business, you ought to know or you probably should not be in the entertainment business. Um, But I was a, a rookie, like a complete rookie. And I knew what I knew, which was I know how to take you know, clients, whether it's Dior or H&M or L'Oreal, like I understood what they were trying to do. And so a partnership, if I was working for me at the time, it was designers and artists, a talent was a talent was a talent. A contract is a contract is a contract. And so for me, I didn't really understand the nuance in that kind of way. I was like, I can do a deal. I can do it with anyone. And so when I first started, it really was about trying to navigate what was the Hollywood entertainment business. And that's a closed door. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, especially for an out-of-town woman. <laughs> it's like, it's a closed door. And so I arrived, and again, you know, I would just try to get people on the phone and um, without understanding who they were and why I couldn't see them. And, you know, if you call enough times, someone's going to take your call. See, I think that's the secret. 
because a lot of people are wondering what's the secret, what's the special in, and part of it is statistics, right? Like, also, also, 100%. You know, I would always say that. And, you know, my one of my first jobs was in, you know, business development. And I would have an Excel list. And I was like, if I make 100 calls, chances are I'm going to get 20 calls back and 10 of them will turn into, you know, a meeting or a follow-up email and one thing will drop. You know, that that was always my way of doing everything. And so it was just about how many lists of 100 can you make right. before you get to something. And, you know, again, that takes... Uh, a spirit and an energy that you have to be able to take knockbacks. You've got to be able to take rejection. Mm. And for me, it was just, I don't take those things personally. I never for once thought, is it me? Am I not good at this? I was just like, <laughs> wow, on to the next one. <laughs> I was like, I was like I'm amazing. Um. <laughs> I will go there. You know, and again, that's that's naivety, right? That's part of yes. it. Because if you don't know who you're trying to get on the call and you don't understand Hollywood hierarchy and you don't know that you're a no one, you know, my mum told me I was the best thing since sliced bread. So I really was like, yeah, you know, if you meet me, you'll love me. You know, and I really <laughs> believed that. I really did. And, and chances were that actually when you did meet me, you kind of thought I was all right and I had something good to to bring to the table so I just met you and I definitely think that (laughs) it's also to that point though there's something of a naivete when you start at something and you don't have anything to lose in the same way that if you're at the negotiating table today you are protecting an entire empire that you've now built at the negotiating table 10 years ago you're just getting your start you're willing to either forfeit things or you're just willing to put it all out there absolutely and you know that's part of it as well when it's your own business and you've just got to you know put you know, there was it was me, right? There was no one else to pay. You don't there have to no ask one, anyone. No. Is this cool? Like, Does this work everything with everything was my else? Own choice. Like even yeah. you know that decision to take a flight to LA was a thing. It was like, can I afford to take this flight to do these meetings to not blow my budgets for the rest of the month? Everything was a consideration. But then on the other side of that, it's like, what is my choice? And so I'm very single minded. You know, even. Even 15 years ago, I cared most about winning. And I think that's what I wake up and do every day. I'm like, what is my end goal and what's going to get me closer to the end goal? Right. Because we're also time pressed. And so at, at that point, 15 years ago, it was like, what can I afford to do? At this point in my day, it's like, what do I have time to do? And what? how do I make something a priority? You know, like deal with things that are important and not urgent but it's always been the same process in my head it's like what gets me closer to winning and that's it you everything that comes out of your mouth Emma I'm loving it (laughs) um okay so at what point did you decide good American is the thing I want to do you know it for me it was an interesting thing it really I'd love to say you know that it was like this bolt out of the blue it was a very slow series of happenings I'd been in and around the fashion business for a very very long time you start to understand that there are uh, a huge group of women that are very not not poorly served ignored by the wider fashion industry so that was in my head that was like you have to do something Emma that is about and has inclusivity at the heart of it. That was the original kind of bubbling feeling. And then life happens, right? I had a business that existed in three cities at that point. I had 80 people in that company that needed to be paid every month. I honestly felt like at that point in time, the company didn't survive without me. That's Mm -hmm. not the case now because I sold it and it did survive and it does extremely well. Um, But, you know, there there is that feeling that, whatever you do next 
has to be as good as whatever you're doing. And so for me, it was this kind of slow uh, series of realizations that I needed to do something else, that I was done with that business, that I'd made, honestly, you know, a lot of money and a lot of good decisions on behalf of clients of mine and seen no upside in that. So I was like, I need a piece of what I'm creating. And also this you know, I'll I'll be honest, there was like a clear commercial opportunity for me. You know, I've always been very focused. I want to make money. And I've been pretty shameless about that in my career. And I was like, this is like, this doesn't exist. Like I, you know, there has to be something here. But then, like I said, you know, life came in, I had this agency, I had a toddler, I was pregnant when I first started Good American. And so there was like this tickings kind of time bomb. I'm about to have a baby. So it really put your, uh, you know, what I could do. It's clarifying. It's very clarifying. It's very clarifying. And it almost, you know, it really, um, it really solidified in my head what I was going to do. So I think that the idea about inclusivity was one thing. I decided denim because I thought, you know, I really wanted to take like a, a pain product, something that I know women struggle with. And for me, it was like, what do you really struggle with? Denim and swimwear. They were two yes. categories where I was like, that's just a, a thing that women go, uh, you know, you, you visibly see women like shrinking in their chairs when they have to start thinking about buying those things. Um, And I really wanted to solve a problem. You know, I was like, I don't just want to do fashion. It's like I want to take something that I believe is an issue and have a point of view and actually radically change something. And so I was thinking a lot about denim, but I was also thinking about the wider impact of what I was doing. I was pregnant with a girl and I was like, how much time have I spent worrying about my weight or thinking about some weird diet or looking at myself in the mirror. And I was like, what a waste of time. Like if I could have told my younger self how much of a waste of time that is, like what would I do? How would I do things differently? And so Good American was such a statement about where, you know, my own personal journey, Mm -hmm. where I'd come to, what I thought about the media's interpretation of fashion and how that is represented now. Um, And also just wanting to do something like knowing that I was going to have a little girl. I was like, wow, we need to change stuff. This is wrong. So let's do it. Yeah. How did you and Chloe get connected on this? I mean, I know from Chris, but how did that come to be? So it was one of those things. I I had the skeleton of an idea. um, And like I've just described, and Chris, I'd known I'd done other deals with the family. And so I was on, you know, in the position where I could call her and she would come to lunch with me. And I called Chris and I kind of gently pitched the idea. And she was like, Emma, you know, this is a like, if you want to talk to Chloe, you have to talk to Chloe. Were you nervous to, to pitch it? Hear more from Emma Greed after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. 
You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com because everybody needs a girlfriend. Were you nervous to, to pitch it? No, no, I wasn't because I thought it was genius. <laughs> no, I wasn't nervous at all, but I was, I definitely thought it was punchy. I was like, what, what have you got, Emma? You, you know, you're an agency chick. You have no track record in apparel. And let's be honest, that family have their pick of the litter. They can do anything they want. And they have new businesses, new startups, new funds come to them all the time saying, hey, do you want to be part of this, uh, you know, for an equity share? I think at the end of the day, and I know at the end of the day, what happened is that Chloe got it. I pitched Mm -hmm. her that idea and a light bulb went off in her head and she literally finished my sentences. And what I understood in that meeting, I was like, she is the girl. She has felt like this. She has experienced it firsthand. And I knew in that moment, I I was so clear that Chloe was the person that I wanted to work with. But after that first meeting, I come out going, you know, I was like, thank God she's into this. And how quickly can I get this going? Because at that point, it really was a keynote presentation. We hadn't raised any money. There was no real, you know, it was a working name and I had nothing. It was just an idea. And so I was like, okay, better get to work. How did you she do that? She said yes. Yeah, she, so she says yes. She's like, yeah. Where she, and she literally said to me, so what, what should, what's next? What should I do? And I went, oh, uh, hold, hold, the, hold that, Chloe. I'll come back to you. Well, because obviously there are some great ideas out there and the mission and thesis both make sense, but it's all about the execution once you have that. Yeah. There's somebody that I work with that has a brilliant, uh, well, how does she say it? She says an, an A idea with a B team is still a C execution and <laughs> never ever has something been more true. Um, it's Tuba, who's my former COO at ITB. You know, you really, for me, it was, that was the first thing. I was like, where are my people? How am I going to assemble a crack team to really be able to pull this off? Because I have the energy and some of the know-how and the connections, but I certainly didn't have all of the expertise. So at that point, it was about assembling an amazing team and raising the finance. And what I had was that I'd had two successful businesses behind me and I'm very, um, you know, I'm close to the kind of, I guess, the funding and financing community sure. even around the fashion So you space. could go out to investors and yeah. say, you've been with me on this journey before. You made money. Absolutely. Invest in this new idea. Yes. So you went back to that well. Absolutely. And, and for me, it was not so much about, you know, without sounding arrogant, and I never want it to come across as arrogant because I'm very, very aware of the issues that women have finding funding, especially black women, of which I am. And so I'm not arrogant about it. But for me, it wasn't going to be an issue raising money. It was like, who is that money? And what do I need? And so what I wasn't looking for, I was looking for a strategic investor that could come in with know how and what I don't have. And so the investors that I was able to bring in were really, you know, first of all, it was, and just for full transparency, my husband and his business partner, because they were my investors in both businesses that I'd done, um, but they didn't give me the full amount. And then I had to go out elsewhere. So it was really about finding the balance and really understanding what somebody had to bring to the table. Um, And of course, you know, when you're, when you have a business partner like Khloe Kardashian, that also makes that a little bit easier. Absolutely. I wonder, though, as I was thinking about this conversation, um, is it not to say that she overshadows you in any way, but you are a businesswoman in your own right. Of course, her name is always going to lead conversations. Absolutely. How do you think about that? As your role, you're the CEO, you're, uh, and this is not to undermine her in any way, but my assumption would be that you're the one on the day-to-day 
putting in the blood, sweat, and tears. And of course, she's adding a huge amount of value through her name, but I would assume she's not doing the same type of work as you. No, and I think that's a really, it's a it's a very, very good point because I think about, you know, just partnerships in general and how different, you know, uh, roles happen, right? I, I'm a person that I really, I'm a team player. I've been really smart in the businesses that I've had to always surround myself with amazing finance people. I am dyslexic AF, <laughs> right? It's like, that is just it. There is no other way to put it. If you give me an Excel sheet, it takes me, you know, it, it takes me a while just to fathom what I'm looking at before I've even started to look at the numbers and then see any kind of patterns in the numbers. So let's, let's say that. I honestly believe that partnership has to you have to be happy with what you're doing in the beginning and I honestly know what value Chloe brings and she rather importantly knows what I bring we don't step on each other's toes right Chloe is amazing when it comes to really having an amazing understanding of I guess what is you know the wider customer in mm-hmm. this country right yeah. she really gets she interacts with them base. every day she her inter- instagram account is part of she that she has done for what 10 15 years so there's a lot of knowledge and know-how and remember she's also a businesswoman she's had things that have worked she's had things that have failed and she's taken all of those learnings on so i think it would be unfair to think of chloe like she's just a spokesperson what she does is a lot more i think what chloe and i both do really well is we know what we don't know Chloe's not there trying to get into warehousing and logistics. And I am not there trying to like ferociously grow my media following so I can get to 160 million followers. It's like we know what we do and we have the utmost respect for one another. And we both bring entirely different things to the party. So I think that we start from a place of real respect for what each other bring. And honestly, you know, I'm not I don't have that kind of ego. It's like I get it publications are going to lead with Chloe because when you say Chloe, you get the clicks and that is an advantage to my business. So I really have parked my ego in that sense because I'm like, what's good for the business is good for me, is good for the brand that I'm building. And it's also what's good for the mission because Chloe and I and where we align the most is if we just wanted to make clothes, like it wouldn't be at this price point. If we just wanted to do it, we wouldn't have added, you know, we wouldn't have made 15 sizes because that's not easy either. So if it were just about the commercial opportunity, we'd both be probably doing something else. We have a very, very clear mission of what we believe Good American is there to do. And we really have shifted the way people think in the fashion business. And we're really being credited with doing that. Before Good American, no one was shooting on multiple sized econ models. You didn't see it. There was one standard size. If you were in the plus business, you shot on a plus girl. And if you were in the missy business, you shot on a size zero. And now you go onto websites and you see what Good American pioneered, which was you being able to see product on a size that was similar to you. And so there's so many things that we have done that we're really proud to be copied and for other brands to like do, you know, and come after us. And I think that it it takes two of us. It takes two different sets of skills. And so we're... I, I would say we're both comfortable and I'm I'm you know I'm happy to I'm happy to have her. But I think that translates even if your business partner and, and anyone who's listening is not Chloe Kardashian, I think one of the things that you said that really stands out to me is this idea that it was clear from the get-go that you were both happy with your roles. I think what happens a lot of the time in business partnerships is that 
one of the two parties or even both of the parties have this view that somewhere down the road, once things get successful, then they'll shake out and it'll be a little bit different and you'll have the role that you want. It has to really be from the jump that both parties are satisfied. On this question, or not even a question, what you've done, the trailblazing that you've done on sizes, why had it never been done before? <laughs> Isn't that just the golden question? <laughs> you know, I think, so So let's be really honest and clear about it. It's um, it's hard, it's expensive, it's technically complex. So when I say hard, it's hard because of the rejection that comes. So, you know, when you have a good idea, you immediately imagine everybody's going to be like, yeah, punch in the air and just come along with you. And what happened in the beginning is that we had the initial excitement. Everyone was like, yeah, this is amazing. But I'm sorry, how many sizes do we have to buy? You want me to do what? How much space is that going to take on my shop floor? I We don't even have plus size, you know, and it was this nonstop, like, barrage of, yeah, like, we want it, but we don't want all of it, but we'll dip our toe in. And we were like, no, 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 no. So Chloe and I, right from the get-go, said, we're going to have a company that's based on a set of principles because we don't want to negotiate at every step of the way. You have to do it our way or it's no go. And so, and in the beginning, that was one of the things I think today really befit us because it just, uh, you know, it completely cleared out anyone just wanting to kind of be in this for a stamp of body positivity approval. We were like, no, thank you. You're either in it with us and you believe what we believe and you're going to be in it for the long run and for the right reasons. Otherwise, we're not going to play with you. Um, and so that was one of the things I think we did really, really well. Your question is, why is why are more people not doing it? And I do think that there is a stigma in the fashion industry at large. It's still very sizist, right? Let's just be honest. If there was a new cosmetics launch today and they launched with seven shades of foundation in fair skin tones, there would be uproar. We'd be like, what? Like you're counting out half the population. Yet we accept brands every day working in this really narrow size range that doesn't work for 68% of the women in this country. And I just don't understand why. We're in this moment where all we talk about is, you know, women's empowerment and female choice and, you know, everything that we've been talking about for the last kind of two or three years in mainstream media, right? I'm not talking about the, the wider feminist movement, but in the mainstream media. And yet fashion is still largely dictated to women by men based on their size. And that's just ludicrous. And so there's some real shaking up of the industry that has to be done. And I think one of the other things is that plus size women have been on their own having to fight that fight, which is ludicrous because sometimes, you know, you need the outsiders to come in and make everybody realise what's happening. And so I do think Good American's been a very interesting business. The fact that we were inclusive from the beginning, you couldn't label us plus, right? Because our best-selling size was a size zero. And you couldn't, you know, kind of put us in a box because we shouted louder than everybody else because it wasn't about Vogue magazine covering us. It was, you know, we shouted louder than anyone because we had Khloe Kardashian. So like it or not, you were going to read about this launch. And, you know, after the commercial success of it, you had no choice. The industry had to go, well, what are they doing? You know, like what's happening? Why would they have a million dollar day? And so I think that... The answers are nuanced and a little bit unclear. And it's interesting that the 
business at large is trying to catch up, but there's still a very long way to go. And what's the deal with the size 15? <laughs> it's my favourite thing to talk about ever. <laughs> I'm an inventor now. So size 15 was really, you know, it's a it's a funny one because it's a mixture of my kind of semi-obsessive personality on Sundays when, you know, my baby's napping. <laughs> I literally read reviews and I still do it to this day because that's where you get the feedback, right? If I'm not in, in the DMs, I'm like reading reviews. And this was one where I started to see people were like, oh, you know, your size 14 is too small for me, but your size 16 is too big. And I was like, you read it once, you read it twice, you read it three times. And I was like, let me look at the returns data. And it was so clear. It was there in the numbers that I've trained myself to read that, you know, we were getting double the amount of returns on those two sizes. And when I spoke to our e-com team, they were like, no, you know, because I thought it was a logistics issue. I was like, they're getting mixed up. And they were like, no, mm. there's nothing weird at the warehouse. So then I spoke to the technical design team and actually when you laid the numbers out, it became very clear. There's a grading rule for Missy and a grading rule for Plus. And without getting overly technical, what there ends up being is this huge chasm in the middle where it would jump. And so women were being missed, completely missed out. It was like, you're not quite Missy sizes, but you're not quite Plus. And I kind of did some, you know, back of the napkin maths and I was like, I think there's 25 million women in this country that must be between sizes, you know, and just so naive. But even to my own team, and this kind of smacks again a bit about personality and not taking no for an answer because I was like, guys, I've solved it. We're going to do a size 15. And they went, Emma, don't be so ridiculous. You can't do that. 15 is a junior size and, you know, no one will understand it and it doesn't make sense in fashion. And they were right because when we sent the specs off to be made in the factory, the factory sent the specs back and were like, "Uh, did you guys get something wrong? Like, this isn't a thing. And we were like, no, it is a thing because we're going to make it a thing. And I'm so happy that we pushed through because, you know, to this day, size 15 is our fourth best selling size. So you can imagine the number of units we actually sell in size 15. And we originally started it just in our core product and now it exists in every single style at Good American. So again, that speaks to a lack of respect for, you know, or, or understanding of what is the norm and just being a bit of a, a rule breaker and not taking no for an answer. They're the things that I do very, very well. Um, but it's not always, you know, it's not always such a success story. It just so happens right. that for this this particular example, it was super successful. And I think the industry's really set up and take notice of that. I hear you that you don't take no for an answer. <laughs> I wouldn't want to tell you no. Don't. <laughs> What's been the biggest challenge for you along the way? Um, there are so many challenges in this business and they go from like just pure technical things like factories not getting it. Um, you know, simple, simple stuff like, you know, we we have a range of dresses and when we tried to make those dresses in the larger sizes, we were told, oh, we don't have the machinery. The machinery doesn't knit in that big a uh, cylinder. And I was like, well, just like program it differently. And they're like, no, 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 it doesn't fit. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do? And they're like, we'd have to buy, we'd have to make a machine. And I'm like, okay, so like, I'm buying machines now. Um, you know, so there are those things that you're like, wow, like that's a, an investment I hadn't anticipated. Mm -hmm. I said I was doing a dress launch. I can't suddenly deviate from what we do. We're doing a dress launch and we're buying machinery. So those things are like, just come up in the business every day. On negotiating, what do you show up to a negotiation with? Confidence. And that's just it. Right. I feel like you if you've got confidence and this actually goes back to the core of what Good American does, because we believe that if a woman feels good and she's comfortable in what she's wearing and she's able to, you know, find her sizes and walk in a store and not have to like, you know, creep around and not be able to find anything for her, that changes your whole demeanor. You come into a room, you feel good, you sit differently, you can present yourself well. And that actually means a lot. We all know that, you know, 
sometimes how you look is how you feel and vice versa. Um, but that's mostly what I would say I bring into a negotiation. So I'm, when someone says no, no, Emma, I love your confidence, but the numbers don't add up. Oh, I will sit them down. I, you know, I'm the, I'm the first person. I'm like, don't say no because you've never done it before. Like, look at, you know, and I, I'm a very well-researched person. So in any single situation, I'd have learned everything. You know, coming into the kind of U.S. department store, you know. She's quoting it. that. Quoting. <laughs> I'm quoting. I'm using quoting. the quote hand. <laughs> you know, I had no idea what the difference was between, a, you know, a Neiman's and a Nordstrom's and a... Bloomies, you know, I, I really didn't. It's like I, I know where I like to buy my shoes and and that was that. And so I'm a person I believe in really researching, really fundamentally understanding their business and what gets them to tick. But also I'm a very forward looking person. So I have absolutely no problem going in and and being critical of something, but really having researched and knowing what I'm talking about. And then, you know, I'm you know, I'm I don't feel embarrassed to bring a bit of charm and, you know, loveliness to a situation, that's fine too. <laughs> And it sounds like you paint the picture, too, this, this idea of the forward-looking part of it. Because I think, as I think about negotiations and where things go wrong, yeah. it's looking backwards on what has happened as opposed to painting, getting someone excited for what could be. It's That's a, that's an, a huge part of it. You know, I spent so much time, you know, li- like literally in contract negotiations. And I think one of the most important things is really understanding your audience, understanding where they've come from and what situation they are currently in. And so when I say I do research, it's like I never go in blind. I really like to try to understand like where is their business? Where is their business heading? What is, you know, what is the competition and what are their biggest fears? Because if you can actually show someone beyond you know what you're trying to sell how you're helping them get to wherever they need to be that's the single biggest thing and sometimes that's not always so obvious to people right sometimes you literally have to paint the picture for them and so being researched being nuanced going in having an idea of actually what their bigger struggles are and how you're getting them to a goal is is imperative and i think that applies to people also if you're negotiating a salary if you're negotiating for a promotion it makes total sense. 100%. You know, I love the people in my business and, you know, this is going to be great when they all listen to it. I love the people <laughs> that come in and tell me what they're doing and what they're bringing to the organisation and why they need to be paid more. And, you know, I've always said and, you know, it's still, it's still true today. You're going to have a lot of meetings after oh, yeah, this interview, I can, I can feel it. They're all, they're all stacking up. Well, I, you know, I employ a lot of, um, I employ a lot of women that really believe in themselves. So, so it's part of the course, you know, but there was a time and I remember certainly in the previous businesses that I've run where, you know, women will always downplay their skills or downplay their involvement and their contribution. And a guy will come in and be like, yeah, like I need a pay rise, you know, with, with nothing. Um, and so I'm very encouraging of that type of personality and no one's going to sell you better than you and I still do it you know myself you know I I feel like you absolutely have to especially in this day and age it's really it's really important skill to know how to present yourself and how to negotiate on your own behalf what's the worst advice you've received along the way (laughs) um in in terms of negotiation or just in general well you can do either 
Well, you know, it's so interesting. I said a bit earlier, you know, this idea of staying in your lane. I've done a really seismic shift in my career. I went from being agency side to running my own brand. And if you were one of my own clients, you you know, you'd kind of look and go, well, what's she doing? You know, we're supposed to be able to call her and hire her for stuff. Um, and I think that's really important, understanding that you'll do well where your passions are, you know, where you feel passionate about something. You shouldn't. I think we live in this really amazing time where we are able to switch and you're able to have many, many journeys and you can have a lot of interest and decide along the way what's right for you. And I certainly feel like what worked for me 15, 20 years ago before I had children, before I had a family is totally different to what works for me now. You know, I spent my 20s like whizzing around the world on a plane at, you know, random offices in weird conferences, pulling all nighters for various different clients. And that wouldn't work for my life right now. Yes. And so I definitely think there are chapters in life. And I really see, I, I, I ignore all the traditional rules when it comes to anything like that. I think they're things that we, they no longer apply to like the modern day and how we live and we work now. What's the worst advice you got about a negotiation? Give up. <laughs> settle. <laughs> Have you ever settled? You've given? Yes, of course, I've definitely settled. There are times when actually, you know, you know what? I tell you what's what's some advice that I get about negotiation. Know when to stop. There is always a moment, right? Because contract negotiations by nature can go on forever. Sometimes I would often call my clients and go, yes, can it get better? Absolutely. Do we have the time? Do we have the inclination? Is this going to damage the relationship? Sometimes you've got to know when to draw a line under something. And I've definitely been in situations where people have lost out on perfectly good negotiations because they just don't know when to stop. There is a point and you should have that point in your mind right at the very beginning and know when to draw a line under it. Because at the end of the day, contracts are only important in the moment they're being negotiated, you know, at the end of the day, there's a relationship that needs to survive that contract and you're only ever pulling something back up again if things go really, really wrong. And so I think, you know, learning to preserve relationships and get in front of people and actually try to understand people is so important. So know when to stop. <laughs> this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. And we'll post more pics on Instagram because um, obviously she's working on her followers. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Leave it to Chloe. I'll send you a picture. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, it is the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur was nominated by Lisa Overman. She is Kate Schmigdahl. She's the owner and director of Bittersweet Creative, which is an award-winning consultancy located in Washington, D.C. Here she is to tell you more. I'm Kate Schmidgall, founder and owner of Bittersweet Creative here in Washington, D.C. And our greatest challenge over the past 10 years has been creating the narrative that we believe needs to exist in the world, which is one that counters cynicism and despair and engages apathy and tries to um, inspire people to, to participate in the good work that's happening around the world. And there's a lot of it. Uh, but is serious about the issues that we face and rigorous in our study of them and artistic in our expression of them. Yet that narrative is not revenue generating. And so it depends um, 
in large part on the revenue from Bittersweet Creative, the for-profit part of our um, of our model. And over time, learning how to properly leverage each entity for the benefit of the other, that's that's been my greatest challenge and ongoing learning experience. Congratulations, Kate. Wishing you and your team continued success. And thanks to Lisa for the nomination. Remember, listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Kate. And if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur, you can send me those nominations to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Shoot me career questions there. Whatever you want to say, let us know. And you can also do that, obviously, on social media, too. Finally, a shout out to the team who helps make this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks to ABC Audio as well. We'll see you all next week.